Hello, Insecurities listeners. We want to thank you all for tuning in. We want to remind you that PLI has a whole suite of programs available for subscribers on demand. Before we jump into our episode, we want to let you know about a PLI studio briefing that Chris and I recently moderated. For those of you who don't know, studio briefings are PLI's online-only roundtable discussions featuring legal and industry experts. Kurt and I moderated a conversation entitled, Trading in Markets, the Regulation of U.S. Stock Exchanges, with two eminents in that space, J.W. Verrett and Tyler Galash. We get into all things market structure, from payment for order flow and best execution to data feeds and what role regulators should play in considering competition. The program is available on demand. To find it, go to pli.edu slash studio briefings. Take a seat at the roundtable and join the conversation. This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Looking forward to this week's hashtag SEC Speaks 2020 from PLI. Come out with Kurt Wolf at Enforce underscore update and me as we live tweet the conference from the SEC and SEC enforcement perspective. And if you need to brush up, check out hashtag insecurities pod. SEC Speaks kicks off today. I'll be live tweeting from the virtual conference. Stay tuned for updates on remarks from Chairman Clayton and Commissioners Roisman, Lee, and Crenshaw, plus OC and Trading and Markets panels. On October 8th and 9th, PLI hosted its annual SEC Speaks conference, a two-day symposium that offers unparalleled access to senior SEC officials. It's one of the premier securities enforcement and regulatory conferences, and one of our favorite events. So naturally, Chris and I were live tweeting the whole conference. We're gonna break down some of the highlights today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. Today, we're speaking to you about SEC Speaks, a show and tell, if you will, put on by PLI, but exclusively featuring speakers currently serving in roles at the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. On this special episode of Insecurities, we're going to talk about highlights from the dozen or so panels at the virtual event, with representation from every major division of the SEC, as well as discussions centered on impactful topics like judicial developments and, Kurt, of course, accounting. Yeah. (laughs) You know, anyone who knows us has undoubtedly heard the story about how Chris and I met years ago through Twitter, following the comments at a securities enforcement conference. Uh, We were at it again this year at the SEC Speaks in 2020, live tweeting from our favorite panel discussions. And in case you weren't following along at home, we're going to wade through the barrage of tweets to tease out some of the key takeaways and some of the funny tweets from the event. Yeah, it wasn't all business, and that's often a a great place to have those conversations on Twitter. Uh, We won't be able to share the GIFs and some of the photos that we had with you in the podcast format. Some of Kurt's comments do require a second read, so I'd encourage you to try to follow hashtag SEC Speaks 2020 and see what Kurt was really talking about. Uh, Yeah, you should, because my gift game is strong. So strong. All right, just to set the scene, 
The SEC Speaks is an annual conference hosted by PLI, and it's been going on for as long as I can remember. It's one of the premier events of the year, and for anyone who's been there, you know that there are hundreds of people in attendance. There are all kinds of networking events around the conference. There's a huge dinner after the conference for SEC alumni and friends. Uh, It really is the place to be if you are in the securities regulatory and enforcement space. But this year, SEC Speaks was unlike any other year before. For starters, it has been postponed twice due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And in the end, it had to be reformatted as a virtual event, which actually came off really well. And congratulations to PLI for that and to the SEC staff for being flexible and making it work. Of course, if you are a PLI subscriber, you can go and watch the SEC Speaks in 2020 on demand at pli.edu. Just a couple notes about how it looks. I mean, for for one thing, many of the staff who were giving presentations on the panels were in their offices or in some cases in in their kitchens or their living rooms. Some were actually at the SEC headquarters um, presenting from their offices there. Uh, And notably, the co-chairs, SEC Enforcement Director Stephanie Avakian and Dahlia Blass, who is the director of the SEC's Division of Investment Management, appeared to be in the large auditorium where the commission convenes for public hearings. And sticking with the with the tweet theme, Chris, one of your early tweets from SEC Speaks commented on this very thing because you know Director Avakian kicked things off, and there she was sitting with the big wood panels behind her in a, in a very official looking, almost like a judge's chair. And, and Chris tweets, "Wow, I'm impressed by SEC Enforcement Director Avakian's home office," which I thought was pretty funny. I mean, you you envision the director of SEC enforcement. I mean, that could have been a you know a, a room in her house. I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, definitely impressive. <laughs> it it definitely was. You know, I, for my part, I was also kind of tweeting about how things just looked and and felt a little bit differently. And I took a also took a lighter take, noting that you know covering SEC speaks from home is a different ball game, but TweetDeck is an upgrade. And that one came with a with a picture of my dual monitors, one of which was just me tweet decking away, following you know hashtag SEC Speaks and hashtag SEC Speaks 2020 and just trying to keep up with tweets from Chris and some of our other friends out there who were tweeting about the conference. It can be a little bit uh, jarring, right, to see these folks, uh, you know, with important jobs and, and professional focus in their houses. But I think, Kurt, our, our pet counter stayed at zero all day. I don't recall seeing any cats, dogs or, or goldfish in the background, but uh, we'll have to check back on that. No, I completely agree. And and also, I don't think we saw any kids run through the background or pop open a door. Uh, of course, as I say that, I think I hear one of my kids popping my door open. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so by all accounts, wildly successful virtual event. Exactly, exactly. You know, well done to, again, to PLI and the staff for, for making it work and bringing that same quality content through a virtual event. Yeah, and I think that, Kurt, getting into the, the nuts and bolts of this discussion today, you know, that really reflects on a lot of what the commission wanted to, to bring up at this conference. The main takeaway here, you know, for, for everyone is that the commission is still moving forward and overcoming the obstacles that are being presented by the pandemic. We'll talk a lot about some of the stats and, and, and cases that have been brought and, and efforts that have continued throughout the pandemic time period. And the chairman and, and other commissioners and division directors really focused on their staff's resiliency, their ability to respond in this remote environment, and and just work together to continue to hold up the SEC's tripartite mission, even not being in the office. 
Yeah, I agree. It was something that definitely came through time and again. I mean, I think every panel, whoever was moderating the panel took a moment up top to just say, you know, thank you to the staff and and well done for, you know, continuing to do their job in some in some difficult or some trying circumstances. And and rightly so, because it has been a year unlike anything we've ever experienced. And for, you know, the SEC to have the success that they've had sort of staying on mission and adapting to have to look at new areas that are COVID related. I know we're going to talk about some of that. It was a job well done. And, you know, I look, I tweeted about it at the time. I said, you know, quote, kudos to Chairman Clayton for taking time to shine a light on the hard work and success of the SEC staff across numerous divisions and offices. It has truly been a challenging year and the staff should be proud of their progress and commitment. And I stand by that tweet 100%. Yeah, looking back now, Kurt, I think the fact that the conference and, and the discussions and the topics were, you know, similar to previous years is, is almost a win on its own, right? If I'm just thinking about if you subtracted every sentence that had pandemic or COVID in it, the conference would have been relatively the same in terms of the reporting statistics and the efforts that they've worked to complete and rulemaking initiatives that have moved forward. So that again to me is just another indicator of how they've stayed kind of on message and and pushing forward the you know, core regulatory and enforcement priorities that they started this year with, pandemic be damned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was great continuity from, you know, past conferences to this conference. And and I think, you know, like you said, it's just because they're staying true to their to their core mission, to their tripartite mandate. And look, that's what they absolutely should be doing. And so again, you know, I think they did a good job. One thing that was a little bit different in a good way that I noticed this year was that there was much more focus on uh, diversity inclusion initiatives at, at the SEC. You know, I tweeted about this too, <laughs> noting that we should give credit to the SEC for taking meaningful steps to improve on this front. But I thought it was just, it was interesting and it was sort of spot on to right up top. I think it was the third segment, right? Right after Chairman Clayton's opening remarks, they had a, a Q&A session with the SEC's Office of Minority and Women Inclusion. Jay Clayton chaired the panel. Uh, the panel featured Pamela Gibbs, who is the SEC's chief diversity officer, and Robert Marchman, who is a senior policy advisor at the SEC, focusing on diversity and, and inclusion. And Jay Clayton actually asked the questions, right? So I think it shows that this is something that's important at the highest levels in the SEC. I think that putting it again as the third segment shows mm-hmm. that this is something that's important to the SEC. And they took, you know, a, a full, I think it was 30 minutes to talk about um, some of the SEC's diversity and inclusion goals, some of the latest initiatives and events, and and some of the good work of the diversity and inclusion advisory committees. So, you know, again, in some in some respects, I'm sure this is a, a result of some of the social unrest that we've had, um, you know, over the past several months. But again, good for the SEC for for recognizing it, for sort of taking the ball and, and trying to move it forward in this very important space. You know, I'd encourage those who aren't as familiar with the makeup of the leadership of the commission to to take a look at the backgrounds and, and the faces of the folks who are involved in leading this organization. You know, securities enforcement and, and regulatory issues can often be painted with a very broad brush in terms of who's operating in this area. And and kudos to the SEC, you know, their makeup and the folks that are leading these efforts and, and the staff themselves are are definitely pretty well along the diversity and inclusion scale. So another testament to the hard work they've put in on those efforts. Yeah, completely agree with you, Chris.
So for today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about what Kurt and I thought was most interesting from the SEC's perspective. A lot of the statements and remarks that have been made uh, by the commissioners themselves, as well as some of the staff, are, are, are publicly available. So if you're interested in the details of, of some of the, the syntax and sentences we'll talk about today, feel free to pull those out on your own. But I think uh, Kurt and I always have what we think is an interesting take on those things. Uh, so we'll be sharing some of that insight with you. Unfortunately, you know, you long-term listeners of the Insecurities uh. podcast will be a little disappointed that... You know, I think I got my my Christmas wish with the SEC Speaks Conference and that for some reason, you know, whether it, it be a lack of, of Wi-Fi strength or, or yeah. some cable being cut in, I know in greater going. Virginia, uh, Kurt was not online for the discussion of uh, Reg BI, which unfortunately, hopefully that's the only time we, we use that acronym here. But uh, I know Kurt was suffering a lot during that time period. Look, I, no promises. I, I bet I can sneak it in one more time before <laughs> we're done today. But yeah, this, this drove me absolutely crazy crazy, right? You know, you sort of carve out periods of your day to tune into the conference. And I was just waiting for, for remarks on Reg BI and the internet went out in my neighborhood and like three or four surrounding neighborhoods. And so, you know, I, of course I tweeted about it and, uh, because my gift game is, is strong, you know, there was this sort of picture of a guy like shaking an old Commodore 64 and screaming at it. And my tweet was, Oh, cruel world. I've been waiting all morning to hear John police talk about Reg BI. And of course, my internet goes out as he takes the stage. So, you know, folks who are tuning in for a Reg BI update, sorry, but today's not your day. Just like October 8th wasn't mine. <laughs> I'm sure for some reason we'll cover it in, in future episodes as well, I, Kurt. But I uh, have a feeling. Your side text had me worried during that period of the conference, but thankfully they they, they went on without it. All right. Um, so so let's uh, move along. I think the first thing that we wanted to talk about were some of the commissioner's remarks at the SEC Speaks conference. Um, this year, we heard from four of the current sitting commissioners. We're actually going to take them a little bit out of order. At the conference, it went Chairman Clayton and then Commissioner Roisman, then Commissioner Lee, followed by the newest Commissioner, Commissioner Crenshaw. Uh, I think that's basically in order of, of seniority or in order of how long they've been in, in their position. We're going to take them in a little bit of a different order today because I think that uh, the chairman's comments and Commissioner Roisman's comments sort of just flow a little bit more naturally into the larger conversation we want to have about enforcement and some related topics. So I'm going to sort of take them in reverse order. So let's kick it off with a with a couple brief observations about Commissioner Crenshaw's remarks. As we've seen in the last couple of SEC speaks when we have a commissioner who is sort of newly uh, newly appointed. Um, they tend to do sort of a fireside chat or an informal Q and A with one of the conference co-chairs. I, I think it was actually Rob Jackson, a, a former guest on the podcast, who started this trend of doing a fireside chat. And you know, the, the new commissioners have kind of picked it up along the way. And so that's what we had this year. The newest commissioner on the commission is Caroline Crenshaw. She sat down to chat with co-chair Dahlia Blass. And uh, I mean, a lot of what they talked about, frankly, was, you know, Commissioner Crenshaw's 
uh, background and experience um, at, at the SEC. She is also a, a JAG officer um, and serves monthly as a member of the National Guard. So she has a, a very interesting background. You know, they did eventually wind into uh, uh, some policy discussions, but it was it, it stayed at a fairly high level due to time constraints and format. Uh, you know, a couple things I, I wanted to call out, and these were actually tweets from a friend of the podcast, Mark Sheff, who reports over at Investment News. You know, he noted that on on Reg BI, Commissioner Crenshaw said, "We need to make sure it lives up to its potential. Mitigation of broker conflicts is important, as is holding firms accountable." And later, Mark noted that new Democratic Commissioner Crenshaw praises the agency's share class initiative for prodding financial firms to recommend less expensive funds. Quote, we're going to save significant costs for retail investors on a going forward basis, end quote. Uh, So, you know, it's interesting trying to glean what her um, sort of philosophy is about the role of a commissioner. But here, it seems like on the one hand, she is um, very interested in protecting retail investors, which is squarely in line with, I think, this commission's priorities. But she's also, you know, taking a little bit of uh, of a stronger standpoint, perhaps with respect to enforcement, saying, "Look, we need to hold firms accountable. Like if they're not doing what they're what they're supposed to do, if they are not making the investment marketplace safe for retail investors, then we need to hold them accountable." Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how her philosophy develops a- as we move forward through her term um, a- as an SEC commissioner. But it was a nice introduction to Commissioner Crenshaw. You know, quickly, I want to you know just make a couple observations about. Commissioner Lee's remarks. Broadly, she talked about the state of the public markets and public offerings, uh, as well as some recent developments for going public and, frankly, some recent rulemakings and proposals that would make it easier for investors to invest in private offerings um, or in, in companies that have chosen not to go public. The way I described it in a tweet was Commissioner Lee is talking about all things capital formation, including observations on private offerings. IPOs, direct listings, and SPACs. And I think if I had to take away one theme um, from Commissioner Lee's remarks, it's that we need to make sure that folks are free to innovate in the public markets and that the SEC is making space for that and not focusing only on opening up new or private markets um, to new or different categories of investors, really just trying to make sure that their regulatory focus remains on sort of the bread and butter, if you will, of, of what the SEC's traditional role or mandate has been. And that is kind of monitoring the public markets to make sure that they're working for investors. Uh, so that's really high level uh, what Commissioners Crenshaw and, and Lee talked about. Uh, Chris, I know that you want to tell us a little bit about Chairman Clayton's remarks, which, which were really, really, really interesting. Yeah, and and I appreciate Chairman Clayton's work at the beginning of his discussion to pat himself on the back. You know, similar occurred to to how you and I try to look back at previous episodes and say how right we were. Chairman Clayton talked about his comments at SEC Speaks 2019, which seems today to be about 18 years ago instead of a mere 18 months ago. But Chairman Clayton noted the in his remarks in the spring of 2019 that, that certain factors may impact the SEC's performance in any given year, including and and I quote here ominously. Quote, the need to divert resources to respond to major or unexpected events, end quote. At the time, you know, that kind of to, to you and me, Kurt, seemed like a catch-all or a throwaway comment, but rings a little bit more true today uh, with right. the, the COVID Absolutely. pandemic occurring. 
Uh, Chairman Clayton also focused a lot on the SEC operations in 2020, which is standard for these kinds of discussions, uh, noting that the Enforcement Division brought over 700 actions in the fiscal year ending September 30th, with special note of the 150 COVID-related cases and the new record total for a given year of 39 whistleblower awards distributed, totaling more than $175 million. We'll dive deeper into some of those figures in upcoming episodes after the SEC issues their fiscal 2020 Division of Enforcement report as well. But again, as we talked about up top, you know, kind of par for the course in delivering those statistics uh, at the beginning of this conference. When discussing OC, Chairman Clayton noted that the exams this year have covered more than 15% of all SEC registered investment advisors, while also continuing its asset verification program. I agree with the chairman's comment regarding OC's role as a scion in the compliance realm. He said, quote, I am a firm believer that OC's engagement, including their highly informative risk alerts, stops problems before they start. There are no statistics for problems prevented. Yet, we all know the most effective regulatory environment is one that drives a culture of compliance, end quote. Kurt, do you also agree with that statement from the chairman? I absolutely do. For me, I I sort of straddle the line between compliance and enforcement in my day job. And one of the things that we often talk about is this sort of this concept of an ounce of prevention, right? And unfortunately, all too often, that is the area where companies or regulated entities are not willing to or are reluctant to invest, right? Like once you have a problem, companies are, are very are very eager to figure out how, how to resolve it. And the cost sort of is what it is. But yeah, solving these things up front, I I think is absolutely right. I also think it's it's really interesting that the the chairman called out this idea of culture of compliance, which which we're going to come back to in a couple That's right. of minutes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree with the chairman completely yeah. on that point. Um, I'll be looking forward in future reporting and, and remarks if anyone does quote a statistic for quote problems prevented and, and seeing how we can uh, account for that number. Uh, no pun intended. Chairman Clayton also highlighted the commission's work as a partner with other entities and agencies, both within the U.S. and and outside of it, uh, including their work with the Office of Legislative and Intergovernment Affairs and the Office of International Affairs. They engage with regulatory partners through organizations like the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, the Financial Stability Board, and the International Organization of Securities Commissions, or IOSCO. Sagar Teotia, the SEC's chief accountant, serves as the co-chair of IOSCO's monitoring group and works to advance public interest in areas related to international audit standard setting and audit quality. Hopefully, Kurt, IOSCO's monitoring group has listened to our PCAOB discussion with Jovi Deadeye and Robert Peake a few episodes back for insight. Undoubtedly, they have. I mean, yeah. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, the comments that Chairman Clayton provided on a lot of those efforts are very detailed. So I'd encourage you guys to to take a look through uh, his remarks on the SEC's website as needed. But Chairman Clayton closed with two focuses emerging at the SEC. The first, diversity and inclusion, which we've already discussed. And the second, the recent release of their report on the interconnectedness and risk in U.S. credit markets. That report comes from an effort to bring greater understanding to the character and dynamics of our more than $54 trillion in the credit markets. And that's going to be an area of focus throughout the end of uh, the year here, 2020, as there are significant efforts from the SEC to push out their understanding through roundtables and other reports that are coming. So stay tuned for that. But the one takeaway I had from from Chairman Clayton's comments, Kurt, was the mention of those 700 enforcement efforts uh, undertaken in, in fiscal 2020, that the majority of them occurred after March 15th, or kind of that real drop dead date in terms of the pandemic's beginning. You know, as listeners know, enforcement is always a focus of our podcast, and and Kurt can get pretty excited about those issues. But uh, (laughs) noting that, uh, you know, Commissioner Roisman, who who followed up in the conference later, 
talked a little bit about enforcement. And, and Kurt, I think your tweets per minute uh, increased significantly during Commissioner Roisman's remarks. Isn't that true? I think they absolutely did. You know, uh, in addition to enforcement just being the thing that I tend to focus on the most, Commissioner Roisman's speech was uh, was really interesting in in several respects. I mean, look, for those of you that don't follow the enforcement space closely, the way that enforcement matters come to be is, you know, the SEC enforcement staff conducts an investigation at the end of which they will make a decision about whether or not they think that the SEC should bring a case against the the entity or person they've been uh, investigating. And then they make a recommendation to quote the commission, right? Which is the five commissioners and the commissioners, you know, all five of them will vote yes or no on whether they agree with the staff on whether they think it is appropriate for the SEC um, to, to bring an action against the entity or, or individual. And commissioner Roisman was sort of telling us, uh, you know, why he votes yes or no on any particular recommendation. You know, I appreciated that he sort of set the scene by saying, look, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for a couple of years now. I have now had the chance to review and vote on more than 2000 enforcement recommendations. And here are my takeaways, right? Here is my philosophy that has developed through that experience, right? So it was, it was a thoughtful speech, I think, in terms of him saying, this is what I've learned. You know, I thought it was it was helpful too that he said, look, in, in the majority of cases, the commission votes unanimously yes or no. I'm guessing that's more often unanimously yes. But there are these cases where the commissioners have, quote, stark disagreements on particular policy issues, end quote. And I think that is that is sort of the space where he was focusing, right? I think I think what he was telling us was a little bit more about why he might vote no um, than why he often votes yes along with the other commissioners. And he kind of made four big points, I think, that that spell out his philosophy of the the role of enforcement. The first big point that that he made is a refrain that we've heard from many over the last five or eight years, uh, you know, from the directors of enforcement to various commissioners and chairmen, and that is um, that we we shouldn't focus on the numbers. Uh, you know, he he commented that the media and others uh, seem to be attracted to measuring success in an objective, quantitative way, which makes sense, but that you know he quote, does not equate high numbers with success. You know, again, I think, you know, reasonable minds may differ on the value of of sort of objective statistics for monitoring the velocity of of the enforcement program. Um, you know, I, I think the statistics are sometimes helpful just to see what are the areas where they're focusing, how has that changed over time? You know, rather than saying, oh, you know, this number was higher than last year, they must be doing a great job. You know, rather seeing where are the case is clustering, because that does change over time. And we've seen it in this commission as they've focused a little bit more on retail investors. Uh, So his first big point was, let's not focus on the numbers. His second big point was um, the SEC should not be engaged in, you know, quote, regulation by enforcement. And he was very clear that he does not think that enforcement actions are the appropriate space for the SEC or the staff to test novel interpretations of the law 
or what he's called, quote, cases of first impression. And he thinks this is particularly true in settled enforcement actions, because in that case, the enforcement staff has essentially acted as both the prosecutor and the judge. And so, again, if we have a novel interpretation of an SEC rule or a law, and the SEC has agreed with a, with a defendant that this conduct violated a rule or law, there's sort of been no opportunity to to test the bounds of that law. So again, it's a refrain we hear an awful lot. We don't like regulation by enforcement. Uh, the third big point actually relates to the culture of compliance. And Chris, you, you sort of teed it up earlier with Chairman Clayton's remarks. And essentially what uh, Commissioner Royceman said is, um, it is not the role of the SEC to define or set guideposts for what comprises a quote, culture of compliance. He acknowledged that compliance is the goal, but um, you know, insisted forcefully that there are tools other than enforcement to encourage regulated entities to comply with the securities laws. And then the the last point that he made has to do with corporate civil penalties. Uh, you know, again, it's a little bit of a refrain we've heard um, from from certain members of the commission over the last several years. But it, it goes something like, if you charge uh, public companies outsized penalties, it really is the current shareholders that end up suffering, and and they themselves therefore become victims of fraud. Um, that was perpetrated by insiders. You know, he he thinks that they should be mindful about the size of corporate penalties, and that they should really, when they can, restrict that to to include only the the corporate benefit that flowed from fraud, for example, and that any any money paid should really be given back to investors. Um, so th- those were sort of the four big points. Don't focus on the numbers. Avoid regulation by enforcement. It's not the SEC's role to define or require a culture of compliance, and we need to pare back corporate civil penalties. And you know, I just want to note because I, I was tweeting about this repeatedly, and as you noted, Chris, the, the uptick in my tweets was noticeable. I just think it's remarkable how much this speech looks and reads like a speech Commissioner Peirce gave two years ago, uh, and it's sort of a famous speech. That, that's now called the why behind the no. And what she was reacting to were reports that uh, that she votes no on enforcement recommendations more than any other commissioner. Um, I, I believe the reporting was that she votes no 15% of the time. And you know, in her speech, she noted, uh, look, an enforcement is not the end goal. Uh, the goal is fulfilling our mission. And actually, you know, Royceman made the same point. He said, when I'm thinking about an enforcement action or recommendation, I begin with the end. Does the action support our mission? She noted that the SEC should not be playing to the numbers and that more is not always better. She said that uh, rulemaking by enforcement should be avoided and that enforcement should not, you know, quote, stretch the law. She said that the SEC should be wary of charging compliance officers because it, quote, is not the job of the SEC to second guess CCOs. Uh, and she she commented on corporate civil penalties saying, quote, the company's shareholders are the ones that actually pay the penalty. So, I mean, it's sort of like point for point, Royceman and Purse are aligned here. And I think, Chris, that's really what <laughs> what drove the uptick in tweets was, you know, in real time, it's like I, I was hearing the talking points over again. Anyway, th- that's my takeaway on the Royceman speech. Yeah, Curtin, I think one other thing that, that Commissioner Royceman brought up that really piqued my interest was the discussion of some of those kind of leadership level decisions around enforcement. And and he made the, the comment about bad apples. 
And one of the things that we see on the fraud investigation and forensic accounting side a lot is the comparison of three different groups of, of people uh, that are you know potentially or allegedly committing fraud. The first is the bad apple. The second is the bad bushel. And the third is the bad crop. And there's a great book about that on, on uh, behavioral forensics that, that you should read the ABCs of behavioral forensics. But uh, you know to summarize that, really a bad apple is, is this one person that's kind of chafing against the, the grain and, and doing something completely inappropriate uh, and everyone else disagrees with them? Or is there a culture shift and that a bad bushel, right, a bad barrel of apples, for lack of better phrases, a group of folks within an organization that all feel that, you know, that gray area behavior is, is appropriate and, and accepted? Or is it a bad crop in which mm-hmm. an entire generation of, you know, compliance officers or accountants have all grown up with the same mentality so that there's not one person sticking their head out too far? It's much more of that kind of general acceptance of some of the issues there. So a real brief summary of that, but that's what really kicked off with, with Commissioner Roisman's uh, comments for me is trying to identify where in the culture fit, uh, whether that's at a single organization or across the securities markets generally, you might see issues from an enforcement perspective. I think it's a good takeaway. And, you know, this concept of, you know, the bad apple bushel or crop, look, it's absolutely right on. And I think whether you are, you know, in-house compliance or legal or the SEC um, examination or enforcement staff, that that's the kind of thing you need to be thinking about when assessing potential rules violations. And so, with that, I think it's a perfect segue to to talk a little bit about uh, the enforcement panel and what we saw as some of their some of their priorities and what we might expect from them going forward. Yes, I don't think anyone could consider the enforcement panel as the most humble group of people, as it was introduced by Enforcement Director Vakian as quote our first and best panel of the day for the October 9th segment. So, uh, I mean, like, I, where's the lie? I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't point it out directly, but it just feels, <laughs> feels like maybe there should have been some, uh, some qualification there. So, I mean, and we talked a little bit about the enforcement stats up front. I mean, the, the biggest kind of call out again was that, uh, you know, 490 actions have been taken after March 15th, right? So more than half, you know, significantly more than half than the 700 that were quoted. You know, a significant uptick in, in that specific period, uh, but also, as you quoted Commissioner Roisman, and and I think you you tweeted as well a little bit tongue in cheek on your own that quote, not that anyone cares about stats when talking about <laughs> some of the developments on the enforcement panel, but uh, you know the the six hundred investigations that they talked about opening since March is also kind of you know touting their ability to continue the efforts of of the the Division of Enforcement during this this tough period. So, from a topical perspective. You know, again, we talked about it up top. It was pretty rote. Um, you know, the, the focus and determination of what the enforcement group is looking at has really stayed, you know, relatively similar year over year. You know, having a data-driven um, analysis to help bring these enforcement actions and, and resolve them has always been a focus, at least in the relevant range of, of SEC Speaks comments in the past few years at the commission. They talked a little bit about how the investigations themselves uh, are, are looking to speed up. Uh, you know, the the quote that was given uh, from the panel was that the investigations last about three years from from initiation to, to resolution and looking to make that, uh, you know, a faster turnaround for, for those investigations on average. And then, you know, they talked a lot about uh, on the panel, you know, kind of the drumbeat of, of the Clayton um, SEC has been that retail investor focus. So Ponzi schemes are always interesting. Um, There's a great discussion about what affinity fraud really means, uh, affinity fraud being 
an attempt to identify a group of people with a, a shared interest or, or, or a similar background and their internal trust between the individuals of that group helping to perpetrate a fraud. So you target a specific religious organization uh, or, or, or a specific group of people from a similar part of the world that are all you know living and working in, in the United States and attempt to perpetrate an investment scheme or, or a fraud you know on that group, knowing that if one person can be convinced, many in that group will be convinced because of their shared trust. So all of those issues were brought up on the enforcement panel, I think was was really interesting. But also one note of, of going forward, just last week, the Division of Enforcement formed the Office of Bankruptcy Collections, Distributions, and Receiverships within their, their division. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of one of those ideas that's been a long-term coming, right? The SEC has dealt with some of those issues for, for decades. But noting what's expected to be a period of, unfortunately, a significant increase in, in bankruptcies and receiverships and what the commission's role is going to be in enforcing those issues as well as, you know, making those payments on behalf of of investors or, or, or creditors, uh, you know, to, to some of these bankrupt organizations is going to be really interesting to track over the the coming months and years. And and they just announced uh, the chief of that office uh, is Nicola Timmons, who comes from in, inside the SEC, having served as a supervisory trial counsel leading the SEC's distribution function in years prior. So it'll be another kind of development that we'll be on on the lookout for in coming episodes, noting that this is a relatively established area, just being a new new segment of the division will be interesting to follow. Absolutely. I agree. There's a there's a ton of overlap with what the enforcement division currently thinks about and focuses on. And and you're absolutely right. We are unfortunately likely to see you know, more bankruptcies, uh, at least in the next couple of years. And so I think the the enforcement division is wise to have dedicated resources thinking about those issues and the interplay with what they do in the ordinary course. You know, two points I want to touch on quickly that came out of the SEC enforcement panel. Uh, you know, the first relates to the Supreme Court decision in the SEC versus Lou case. Uh, you know, of course, we all remember that in that case, the Supreme Court was asked whether or not the SEC may seek a disgorgement remedy in a case it brings in federal district court. And the the court decided that, yes, they can, uh, subject to certain restrictions uh, about how they calculate damages, whether or not co-defendants may be jointly or severally liable, um, and what they have to do with the funds that uh, that a defendant disgorges. And, you know, generally, I think the rule is going to be that they, they have to return them for the for the benefit of harmed investors, you know, I think that the takeaway, Joe Brenner, um, who is the chief counsel for the Division of Enforcement, was talking about the impact of Lou, and and really, I think the takeaway was, look, this isn't going to slow us down. It's causing us to to rethink a little bit about how are we calculating disgorgement, how are we going to think about defendants' individual liability, but we're kind of just moving forward. You know, he did note that like. Look, if you're if you're a defense counsel or defendant in an SEC case, sort of like help us get there, right? There may be an opportunity for you to to argue what is the pro- appropriate amount of disgorgement, and rather than you know saying oh we don't have access to the data or we can't do it, uh, you know help us. I think the the most tweeted about, if you will, comment on Lou actually came from Director Avakian, and, and I'll just uh, I'll give you the summary with my own tweet, which was. We should expect to see changes in the balance between penalties and disgorgement. Penalties will be higher where permitted by statute. And I think what she's acknowledging is that in the past, the SEC enforcement staff has not always been super precise in calculating the amount of disgorgement, often because they can't, because sometimes the records aren't available, the data isn't available. Now, I think they're going to err on the side of 
a lower amount of disgorgement, um, but they will they will increase the penalty as long as they are permitted to do so by statute. So it, it could be that on balance, the total amount of remedies ordered stays around the same, right? It's just the component pieces are going to be different. Yeah, it pains me to think, Kurt, that there are companies or, or individuals out there that are calculating their you know, SEC scrutiny risk based on, uh, you know, disgorgement versus penalties issues. But I think, you know, Director Ravakian is really trying to hit home that, you know, although Lou may be seen as a limiting factor in uh, the disgorgement process, you know, again, painting a very broad brush there, that the SEC is still going to be attempting to deter, you know, violations with with the full rigor of, that they can and, and penalties will be the the main focus of that. I completely agree. So that is Lou. Uh, just a quick note on whistleblowers. And, and Chris, you hit on it earlier when you were talking about Chairman Clayton's speech. But it, it was sort of a theme that ran through several of the panels, actually. And it was all very positive. The whistleblower program is going full speed ahead. I mean, the, the reports of the number of tips, complaints, and referrals that they are receiving is just astronomical. I mean, I think it was, they've received 15,000 tips since March 15th. And in a typical year, they get about 5,000, right? Yeah. So it's just like, it's through the roof. But with all that going on in the background, the points for the whistleblower program that stood out to me is that the SEC has really taken meaningful steps to reevaluate the process for considering whistleblower awards. And a lot of what that has done is caused them to streamline the process. And so I think, you know, the top line figures you quoted earlier were that in fiscal 20, the SEC authorized awards to 39 individuals, which is a 200% increase over fiscal 2019, the SEC's stats, not mine. And also in fiscal 20, the SEC authorized awards totaling $175 million, um, which is almost 25% of the total amount of the awards the SEC has authorized since 2012. Again, those were the SEC's calculations, not mine. Uh, so, I mean, interesting, right? It really shows that the, the, the velocity is increasing, if anything, and, and is sort of a warning for, for companies, right? Particularly companies that don't have in place policies or, or procedures that would encourage insiders to report potential violations internally before going to the SEC. And I think that that brings me to my last point. The last stat I'm going to throw out there is that they told us that 85% of the whistleblowers that come to the SEC are current or former employees who also reported internally, which is a good sign. Kurt, one of the other things that really struck me was a focus both obviously globally as well as in the SEC's remarks about COVID-related activity. And, and to me, I understand the phrase, but I was interested in, in your take and, and others you know, on Twitter you know, when I asked, question for the group, lots of talk about COVID-related actions. Is there a strict definition out there from the SEC on COVID-related actions, or is it just those related to PPE slash vaccines? And Kurt, I think we had a, a pretty good back and forth with some of the others participating alongside us regarding what COVID related might really mean. I agree. And it's a conversation I've had with other people. I mean, it's a good question and it's something that, that folks are grappling with. I think so far COVID related really has meant, and, and I said this in a tweet, it, it really has meant cases that involve 
you know, schemes or frauds relating to purported uh, vaccines or treatments or access to PPE. Those have been the things that the SEC is focusing on. I think it's just been some of the low hanging fruit. You know, a lot of the trading suspensions have been in that space. So have the six fraud actions that the SEC um, brought so far that relate directly to the pandemic. But, you know, again, I noted this in the tweet. I think that going forward, that universe uh, is going to expand. Uh, You know, I think it's going to include uh, you know, ding, 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 accounting fraud. It could very well include insider trading. There have been reports in the media about insider trading or potential insider trading r- relating to some pharmaceutical companies or reports of vaccines or treatments coming online. And then there's market manipulation or micro cap. And we've already, we've already seen some of that, where we've seen folks pumping up the stock in, in small companies that purport to have access to PPE or uh, purport to be developing some kind of uh, vaccine. So I do think that the the circle is going to expand and it's just going to be interesting to see what that looks like. Yeah. And it kind of gets to to our broader discussion, Kurt, that we always have. And one of our favorite phrases here is when the tide goes out, you you see where the bodies are buried. <laughs> it, not only did did the uh, enforcement accountant, uh, Matt Jakes, talk, use that specific phrase in talking about fraud and, and what the enforcement accounting group is, is looking at going forward. That's kind of where I draw the line between, okay, Am I actually pretending to purchase and sell N95 masks? And that's a fraud and that's obviously COVID related. Or am I a business that's operating in a tough part of the country that's been impacted and I'm fudging the numbers to make myself look good? Yeah. Unrelated to PPE, unrelated to vaccines, but just operating in that COVID environment. That, uh, you know, accountant Jakes, as well as Kurt, Kurt, both you and I really live by that sentiment of of when the tide goes out is where you see where the bodies are buried. Uh, yeah, and and as you know, Chris, it's something we've talked about on the podcast before. If anybody wants to go back and uh, check out episode eight, where we actually talked about practicing during a pandemic, we talked about how folks sometimes use or uh, or perhaps misuse the, the tide going out. Chris, I can feel you leaning towards accounting, and I, and I did note during the conference a tweet where you said something like, "Don't forget about accounting." So here's your chance. What you know? What do we need to take away from an accounting perspective? That tweet was in response to you looking forward to the enforcement panel. Well, it was the best panel of the day. I'm told. I think your your touting of the enforcement panel was karma for your internet going out. But yeah. I don't know if those happened in the proper order. But from an accounting <laughs> perspective, there, there's really kind of four major issues that were brought up. And I actually really enjoyed the way that they had structured the accounting discussion. Kind of that really panel format. You know, some years we come and and every accountant for each division kind of gives their you know six and a half minute speech about what's going on. But there's a lot more back and forth with uh, Chief Accountant Teotia leading the charge. So the big four takeaways I had were delays, disclosure continued initiatives, and and what to look out for. So from a delays perspective, I'm going to hit you with the two big ones, Kurt. 842 and 606? Oh, yeah. Hit me. Your favorite. Uh, 842 being the the new lease standard and, and 606 being the mostly implemented but but relatively um, you know well-known revenue recognition standard. So with the pandemic, both of those initiatives have had a little bit of tweaking in terms of implementation dates. And for those of you impacted, hopefully you've already adjusted to those. But you know the, the lease proposal in all of its complexity and nuance uh, has a significant amount of, of allowance for when that'll be implemented, uh, noting 
the, the struggles and the reduced resources the companies are having this year. And secondarily, the revenue recognition standard, while being in effect for large accelerated filers for at least uh, one reporting period so far, there are other elements uh, from a franchise perspective where that's not yet been implemented and, and will be delayed for the foreseeable future. So there's great resources on the SEC's website, as well as the FASB, to talk about where some of those delays in implementation have come up. The second is disclosure. And we talked a bit in a previous episode, Kurt, about some of the comments this year about the robustness and inclusion of disclosures specific to the pandemic, that also was hit on you know, as well. And that we're really still in a period where there is uncertainty around the impacts and what those are. And, and the broad message from the panel on the accounting side, especially from the Corp Fin perspective, was we don't want you guys to feel like you're going out and trying to you know, navigate through through the jungle with without a flashlight here. Come to us with any questions you have. And that's a drumbeat that we've heard from the commission and specifically on the accounting side for years is don't be afraid to engage with Corp Fin if you have questions about specific disclosures, especially if they're pandemic related. So that's, again, kind of another takeaway that's come through. It's interesting on that point. I mean, look, disclosures have been the subject of an an awful lot of uh, of enforcement actions over the last several years, and I'm not going to be surprised if we see a, you know a small wave of enforcement actions that relate to disclosure issues coming out of the pandemic. I, I do think the point that the staff is trying to make is this isn't a gotcha game. You know, if you have concerns, come to us. But I, you know, look, I'm I'm guessing I'm doing the typical crystal ball gazing, but I would expect that the enforcement cases we see that are disclosure related, pandemic disclosure related are going to be some pretty bad conduct, you know, so, some some willful shading of the facts. But I don't know, Chris, what do you think about that from from a likely enforcement standpoint? I mean, it's not going to be that kind of calling balls and strikes issue. It's going to be more of a, a strikeout versus a home run. And that the cases that we'll see being brought in this specific space, especially as it relates to those disclosure issues, are going to require that level of, of purposeful uh, change or omission. Disclosures are important in what you say as well as what you don't. Yeah. When that information gets reviewed by the commission, you know, especially from an accounting perspective, there's going to be some pretty bright lines uh, as these things get sussed out. The third uh, big takeaway that I took is really this ongoing effort, right? And this kind of almost goes not contrary to some of the things we've already talked about, but kind of running parallel is there's still a lot of issues that are happening regularly unrelated to the pandemic from an accounting perspective. You know, offering frauds, insider trading, FCPA issues are are potentially still occurring. So how is the accounting staff and and enforcement group uh, looking at those? You know, they were happy to talk about the EPS initiative that they've undertaken over the past 18 months or so, as well as other KPIs and data-driven focuses for their, you know, sourcing of, of accounting and enforcement actions in the time period. So I was kind of happy to hear a little, a little bit of a refocus away from the pandemic specifically and just saying, you know, bad issues might be happening out there from an accounting perspective broadly. Let's continue to monitor that. And then finally, what what else can we expect? Uh, there was a great discussion about audit committees, which, you know, Kurt, we should probably talk about on a future episode, the role of audit committees in, in serving at the board of directors. But really the standard by which the, um, the accounting staff and, and those reviewing matters with an audit committee involved is where was the audit committee when conduct happened? And, you know, you can imagine the spectrum of the audit committee was purposefully, you know, defrauded and left out of the conversation being, you know, all the way at one end of the spectrum. And the other is audit committee was fully ingrained in the issues and made a conscious decision not to disclose or not to self-report, you know, and that being the other side of the spectrum. And there was some great discussion about the roles of audit committees and that quote, where was the audit committee question being a part of 
you know, resolutions and, and negotiations from the accounting perspective as well. So those are my big four takeaways, Kurt. I don't know if you ha- want to get in a Reg BI plug just to get back at me. Uh, or, or what else you might have learned from the account? <laughs> no, no. You know, I snuck it in earlier when we were talking about Commissioner Crenshaw. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that one slide. No, look, I think they're they're important takeaways. Any opportunity you get to talk about KPIs is always well taken. Uh, Got it. So <laughs> I think I'll I'll leave it there. You know, the last thing I wanted to say from an enforcement standpoint is I was pleased to see what I think is becoming a a recurring segment in the SEC speaks. And, you know, I referred to it in a tweet as this year's edition of what not to do for defense counsel. So the last couple of years, Director Avakian has commented on or made some observations about things she has noticed defense counsel doing during the course of SEC investigations or enforcement actions. And I think what she's trying to do is just say, hey, like we we see what you're doing maybe don't do that stuff. (laughs) And, you know, this year, there were a couple interesting notes, you know, one was, don't get too cute with your claims of privilege, right? Um, And and especially don't withhold a document on that basis until after your star witness has given testimony to the SEC. The staff is going to take a dim view of that, understandably, and they're probably just going to call the witness back once they have the documents. So, you know, don't get too cute there. The other thing relates to the Wells process, you know, and as I, as I talked about when, when we were discussing Commissioner Roisman's speech, you know, the staff will make a recommendation to the commission that they think it's appropriate to bring an enforcement action. And in connection with that recommendation, they will submit what is known as a Wells memorandum to, to the commission that basically says, here's all the evidence and here's why we think the SEC should charge this entity or individual the entity and individual actually has an opportunity to also make a well submission to the commission. And in connection with that, sometimes make a presentation to senior enforcement staff, maybe trying to persuade them one way or the other about whether they, they think they should recommend enforcement action or they should recommend lesser charges. And, you know, Director of Aiken's point, and she's made it before, was be strategic in the process. Think about what is your ultimate goal, because it doesn't always make sense to swing for the fences. And and I can tell you from my experience in, in numerous SEC enforcement actions, sometimes the writing is on the wall. You're not going to make the entire case go away, but maybe you could make one of the charges go away, or you could take it from you know, a fraud charge to something less than that, you know, policies and procedures, books and records, something like that. Or maybe you can just get the amount of the penalty down, right? But be be thoughtful, be targeted in what you're asking for, particularly if you're going to ask Director Avakian to take time out to listen to your presentation, be focused. We've spent a lot of time today talking about some of the great things at this year's SEC Speaks. And again, kudos to, to everyone who helped put on what, what could only be a more challenging event virtually. Uh, I know, at least through Twitter, Kurt, you identified at least one thing you missed from from the SEC Speaks conference. I did. I, I missed uh, I missed networking. I missed seeing friends and colleagues. I mean, it's one of the things I look forward to every year is seeing folks that, you know, some folks I used to work with, some folks I've had like a case with here or there. It's some folks I only see like once or twice a year. This year, I didn't get that at all. Uh, and and as, <laughs> as, I, as I tweeted, uh, the snacks aren't as good at home. Uh, so <laughs> I did. I did miss being there in person. 
Yeah, the, the the cookies I had were left over from the weekend, so not not as fresh as they are when we get to to participate in the conference. But you know, I also made the quip about uh, my coworker for the day was my dog uh, Veda, and she is definitely not a fan of any of the lanyards or name tags we're usually caught wearing at these conferences. So I, I can just imagine her chasing you around the living room trying to, trying to get the name tag. <laughs> it's, uh, it doesn't get worn for long. We'll put it that way. She wouldn't get into the after lunch section. We hope that you guys enjoyed some of our recap of this year's SEC Speaks Conference. Thank you for joining us for this episode, and, and a special thanks to those panelists from the commission uh, and PLI's production team, and, and I'm sure everyone who's been running around for the past few months trying to put on this year's event. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.